Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, uh, pleased to welcome you here to the Cato Institute. I'm George Selgin, the director of Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Uh, we're here this evening, of course, to, to watch and then discuss a movie. The movie is a, a documentary called Medical Marijuana and Money Laundering. The topic of the film, which was produced by the Federalist Society and directed by Matt Wood, who will uh, be with us later on for the discussion, uh, is one that very much concerns all of us at Cato, uh, for uh, we are, after all, an, an anti-war bunch. And this uh, topic concerns the intersection, as it were, of two major wars that uh, the federal government has been waging, namely the war on drugs, which is uh, Jeff Myron's bailiwick, and its war on banks, which is what the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives is con most concerned about. So we'll watch the movie, and afterwards we'll engage with four uh, uh, experts in a roundtable discussion of the film and its topic, uh, which will be followed by some question and answer, answers, uh, questions and answers by the audience, and finally by a reception where I'm afraid you'll all have to settle for beer, wine, and soda, DC laws notwithstanding. So uh, let's uh, roll it, and uh, then afterwards we'll assemble our panel and have a good talk. Thank you. 29 states have now legalized marijuana for medicinal use, and additional states have legalized marijuana for recreational use. But federally, marijuana is illegal in all circumstances in the United States. It's a Schedule I substance under the Controlled Substances Act. That clearly applies to people who are in the marijuana industry, but it also applies to those who just nibble around the edges of the industry, like banks. Understanding the total value of the marijuana industry is a pretty complex question. Projections of the legal market right now are somewhere uh, in the five to eight billion dollar range per year. But as new states come online, both for medical marijuana and for recreational marijuana, those numbers are expected to increase significantly over the next few years. But the banking status, the ability of marijuana businesses to access the banking industry to use standard deposit accounts and credit card transactions and all to get loans and all those sorts of things is in this very weird gray area. I wrote my paper about banks, marijuana, and federalism because people were asking me, why don't banks open accounts for marijuana businesses? And then other people were asking me, well, what can we do about this problem? We have a business that is legal in some states and they can't get access to banks. Isn't there something that either the businesses themselves or the states or the federal government could do to make this happen? And so I've been asked it so often, I decided that the answer ought to just be in a paper. Officially, it's still illegal. Current federal law says that banks, all banks, who are in any way regulated by the federal government, which at this point is essentially all banks, all financial intermediaries, cannot engage in activities involving illegal activities. So if marijuana is illegal in all circumstances in the United States, access to a mainstream checking or savings account makes that illegal funding look legal. So that is, in many ways, a very basic example of money laundering. The crucial law that causes banks to avoid working with marijuana businesses, even 
businesses which are fully legal under state law. It's called the Bank Secrecy Act. And the Bank Secrecy Act basically says banks should not be accepting deposits, making loans, clearing credit card transactions, etc., with businesses that are engaged in illegal activities. The Bank Secrecy Act is the primary tool that the federal government uses to combat money laundering. Now, there are lots of different anti-money laundering laws, but the basic idea behind them all is that it's illegal to take money from an illegal source and put it to legal use. If a bank accepts money knowing that it came from uh, an illegal business, like a, even a state legal marijuana business, that violates anti-money laundering laws. The Federal Credit Union Act and the Federal Deposit Insurance Act are the laws that effectively allow mechanistically for the financial uh, institutions of the United States to work. With those laws come the associated regulations that banks and other financial entities must abide by. They forbid working with drug, uh, drug cartels, uh, drug dealers, and really any business related to an illicit drug. So it creates a real federal apparatus that will prevent financial institutions from doing this for fear of retribu retribution from the federal government. The standard explanation for why governments want to impose anti-money laundering laws, which is the general category under which the Bank Secrecy Act and the sequel lie fall, is that it's hard to clamp down on certain illegal activities like the illegal drug trade or prostitution rings or gambling that's uh, underground partially because all of these things are consensual activities. The two parties to a drug transaction, neither one of those wants to go to the police and say, hey, that person just broke the law by selling me drugs because of course you're admitting to a crime yourself if you go to the police and complain about that. So in earlier decades, in the 60s and 70s, federal prosecutors and others, politicians decided, well, maybe we can make banks help us enforce these laws against drugs and other uh, illegal activities by telling them if they accept those deposits, then they are in fact complicit in those activities and they will be prosecuted as well. Banks that work with marijuana businesses take a lot of risks. One of the risks is that law enforcement will decide that they've broken criminal laws, either the laws that say that you can't help people manufacture, distribute, or sell marijuana, or the anti-money laundering laws. And as most people know, the penalty for distributing marijuana is going to jail. So one of the risks they run is that their employees could be sent to jail or that the bank itself could be criminally charged. Banks face the uh, real prospect of fines from the federal government, lawsuits or regulatory action from the federal government. They can be subject to all sorts of other suspension of their deposit insurance. Uh, the federal government can freeze assets in institutions that are engaging in this conduct. And ultimately, if their federal regulators decide that the um, bank has engaged in too much risky behavior, federal regulators can just close the bank. And if you back up from the marijuana example and you look at, say, a bank who would be willing to engage with a Colombian cocaine cartel, uh, they would actually be engaging in uh, similar conduct in the eyes of the law as a marijuana entity. And the idea of what the federal government might do to a bank that engages with a cartel like that can be very serious. And so bankers 
who in this case are risk averse, are thinking in those terms, not as what a regulated dispensary in Denver or Seattle might look like, but what the federal government might think of in terms of the broad range of uh, drug cartels or drug dealers or drug entities that can exist. Consequences for marijuana businesses of not having access to standard banking are potentially quite significant. First, any business in the United States in order to operate safely and efficiently requires access to financial institutions. And that's not simply checking and savings accounts, but that's access to lines of credit, to business loans, the traditional types of ways in which businesses can grow. They can't pay their employees with checks or direct deposit. They can't easily accept credit card payments from customers. They can't easily obtain small business or trade credit type of loans. Um, It means they are likely to want to have extra security because having a lot of cash on hand might make you a magnet for robbery, theft, and so on. Certainly any cash-only business faces the risk of robbery in a way that a business that relies less on cash would. Um, There have been examples in some legal states of armed robberies, uh, of dispensaries, armed robberies of individuals who are either coming into or leaving dispensaries. And so that public safety risk is not necessarily due to the cannabis industry itself, but is actually due to the federal government's unwillingness to allow these institutions uh, to engage in banking or have access to traditional financial products. Most states that have legalized recreational marijuana, they want to move to a system where taxes from the industry itself funds their regulatory efforts. So they want the taxes from the businesses to fund the licensing of the business and the background checks of the employees and law enforcement to go out to make sure that they're not selling to minors, that sort of thing. But If all of the business operates in cash, it can be hard for the state government to properly collect taxes, which can make it hard to use those taxes to properly regulate the industry. And so um, by not letting the businesses into the banking system, we're making it harder for states that have legalized marijuana to properly regulate it, to keep it from being a problem. But it's also a burden for the consumer to have to use cash in all circumstances and not be able to use basic products like debit cards and credit cards to pay for their cannabis. That's true in medical markets and it's true in recreational markets as well. Because the limitations on banking marijuana come at the federal level, I do not think that there is anything that the states can do to solve the problem. Colorado certainly tried. They've um, chartered a credit union that would bank the marijuana industry, but then that credit union couldn't get deposit insurance or access to the Federal Reserve System, so it couldn't really become a credit union. So I think that the answer for marijuana banking has to come at the federal level. The Secure and Fair Enforcement Act is a proposal um, by representatives from states that have legalized marijuana. The SAFE Act would essentially put into a law that as long as you satisfy certain conditions and as long as your activities were legal under your state laws, then you could, the banks in those states could help marijuana businesses accept deposits from those businesses and so on. It would leave marijuana illegal, um, but it would just allow the banking aspect of it to be um, not, not criminal anymore. 
So it would take this, the current situation, which is gray and legally not really very comforting for banks, and allow them to feel that they had explicit legal protection against the general provisions of the Bank Secrecy Act. One argument that advocates of current policy might make is that marijuana, whether you like it or not, is still illegal under federal law, and the federal government has a responsibility to enforce the laws on the books, even if that government doesn't like those laws or even if other people don't like those laws. Regardless of what you think of marijuana itself, if you're going to have it, if you're not going to enforce criminal law against marijuana businesses, that you ought to let them have access to the banking system because it allows law enforcement to work effectively to regulate them. Most opponents should think about is what makes this industry that is a reality even safer. And banking will make it more difficult for cannabis-related businesses to engage in illegal activity. And that's something that opponents should applaud. Now I'd like to uh, invite our panelists to join me on the stage here. Uh, you, you have already met three of them. Uh, Julie Hill is professor at uh, the University of Alabama School of Law. Uh, then uh, we have uh, uh, Jeff Myron from the uh, Cato Institute. He's director of economic studies here. John Hudak, deputy director at the Center of Effective Public Management and senior fellow governance studies at the Brookings Institute. And finally, Matt Wood, who you haven't met yet, who's the director of the movie. Uh, uh, and he is also generally director of film and photography at the Federalist Society. So welcome all of you. Thank you so much for uh, giving us an opportunity to chat with you about, about, about your movie. So I uh, have uh, many more questions and I think we'll be able to cover, uh, but I'd like to start with an obvious one. Uh, Matt, uh, why did you decide, uh, why did you and the Federalist Society decide to make this film uh, at this time? What, uh, what was the inspiration behind uh, that decision? Yeah, well, um, thank you, Cato, for putting this on and thank you all, all the experts for actually being in the film. Uh, and thank you to the Federal Society for giving us the resources to make this. Um, and I think the answer to that question is to kind of look and take a step back at why we make all of our films. And we sort of ask, what purpose does this serve the Federal Society? Um, and our main mission in one way is to educate law students, provide different perspectives on legal and public policy topics. So with this film uh, in specific, we thought of different ways that this would appeal to our audience, would be beneficial for law students and other people to see. Uh, and I think those are, one is that it brings up interesting points of federalism. Uh, it brings up an interesting public policy point, And uh, also that it allows us to talk about um, a legal issue, banking, in a way that's more interesting, perhaps, than just talking about banking by itself. And so on the federalism issue, 
Obviously, federally, it's still illegal, but uh, now we have more than half the country with legal access in some way. Um, and so even if the Supremacy Clause may trump state law, uh, it's still a reality. So it's certainly something that is, um, that is going on in the country and I think is worth talking about and provides an interesting experiment of federalism and how it works. Uh, and then I think the public policy issue is that, uh, like I just said, it's more than half the country now has legal marijuana in some way. 20 years ago, uh, no one did. And so it's obviously a very relevant topic and something that's not going to go away anytime in the near future, I don't think. So uh, those reasons. And then also, it's an interesting way to talk about this really kind of nerdy legal topic of the banking system, but to talk about it in a way that I think a lot of people who may not just go look for a banking video on YouTube, they may watch this. And then by that way, they also learn something about the federal banking system. So I think it kind of checks off a lot of boxes. Uh, for our organization. Terrific. Well, being one of those nerds who's really into banking, I, uh, <laughs> I want to turn to Julie next. Uh, uh, your article, your legal article, which was mentioned in the movie, addresses the peculiar version of federalism that's at work in our banking system, where you can have a bank that is chartered by, and even in some cases insured by, state agencies, so it doesn't take a federal uh, uh, government approval to, to be a banker or to operate a credit union. And yet, uh, the federal laws are going to make life very difficult for you if you have a state a chartered bank or credit union and deal with people in a marijuana-related business. So could you just tell us a little bit about what, what, what are the problems that let's say I'm one of these state chartered banks and I've got all the licenses and everything to do business. What am I faced with if I dare to open an account for what is in that the state I operate in, a perfectly legal marijuana production business? What am I up against? What, what do I have to fear? Well, um, even if you're a state chartered credit union or or bank, you probably still have federal insurance. Nearly all banks do, and almost all credit unions do. And because the federal government's providing the deposit insurance, they think that they should have a, a say in whether the banks are operated in a safe and sound manner. And of course, when they start thinking about safety and soundness, they think about all sorts of things, including whether the bank poses uh, does any activities that pose reputational risk. And so if you do anything that they consider unsafe or unsound, um, they can tell you to stop doing it. And if you don't, they can take away your deposit insurance, which would essentially close your bank. Um, the other thing all financial institutions have is access to payment systems that are provided through the Federal Reserve. So if your um, paycheck is automatically deposited to your account like magic, or uh, if you send wire transfers to, to pay your debts, all of those systems essentially run through the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve has to give you access to their systems. Otherwise, you just can't really transfer money um, very well at all within the United States. So um, in theory, uh, if the Federal Reserve is upset with you, they could revoke that. And then, of course, you've got a federal criminal uh, enforcers. So um, you've got the Department of Justice uh, and the other uh, 
authorities treasure, at Treasury that are tasked with enforcing money laundering laws. And if they think that you violated them, you can be subject to civil and criminal penalties, including fines and your employees <laughs> going to jail. So even though it seems like you ought to be able to have a state chartered a credit union or a state chartered bank that is just regulated by the state, um, the federal government really has its tentacles intertwined with banking, um, regardless of where your charter's from. Well, John, uh, following up on this, uh, <clears throat> could you walk us through the Bank Secrecy Act uh, and, and specifically help us to understand how it would discourage uh, a, a bank from uh, uh, dealing with the marijuana-related uh, industry, even a state bank in a state where such an industry is itself legal? The Bank Secrecy Act is one of the most powerful tools that the federal government has to enforce against the uh, financial industry, uh, though it's certainly not uh, the only one, uh, and it's not the only one that affects marijuana-related businesses, but it's an important one, and so it lays out in uh, its key parts, essentially terms of behavior that uh, individuals engaging with the financial services industry, with banks, um, have to abide by and how banks have to uh, behave as well. For example, uh, there are rules in place about what a, a bank teller, all the way down to the bank teller level, has to do if someone comes in with a $10,000 deposit. They have to fill out a form. Now that $10,000 figure was set in 1970 when the Bank Secrecy Act was passed. Now, uh, that's worth about $65,000 today, $10,000 in, in 1970 dollars. That has not been adjusted or indexed for inflation or anything like that. Um, in addition to that, uh, what's especially key for the cannabis industry uh, is that banks are required to fill out suspicious activity reports whenever they encounter suspicious activity. Um, suspicious activity runs the gambit in terms of the types of uh, look or behavior or manner in which uh, a transaction is happening. So structuring is one uh, issue uh, that the Bank Secrecy Act covers under a suspicious activity report. That is, a bank teller does not have to fill out a form for a transaction that's $9,999. Uh, but if the same person comes in every day with a $9,999 deposit, they're clearly structuring. They are clearly trying to get in under the $10,000 mark, and they're behaving in a way that is suspicious. They also need to do that if a bank teller or a, an individual in the bank believes that money laundering is happening. And as Julie explained in the film, money laundering is taking proceeds from an illegal operation and trying to launder them through a clean operation. By definition, under federal law, any exchange of money involved in a cannabis transaction in the United States is illegal, and bringing that transaction to a bank is money laundering. And so if you believe that a transaction is involved in uh, the marijuana industry, legal or illegal at the state level, uh, then a bank teller is required under the Bank Secrecy Act to do this. And so it compels banks to report in a certain way. And banks that fail to report face their own uh, types of uh, retribution, their own types of punishment beyond just what the law says. Mm -hmm. Just a failure to report does that. And it puts banks in very difficult positions in legal states, both for adult use cannabis and for medical cannabis. Just, just to make sure I've got, uh, got this right, 
so let's suppose we have a bank where the officers, everybody agrees, we're, we're going to be brave and we're going to do all this stuff. You could be a teller at that bank and be prosecuted because you didn't report yeah, the, I mean, what would more that- likely happen is a bank teller is going to be fired if uh, uh, financial regulators come in and start to uh, look into it. Right. But as that escalates up the chain, uh, then, yeah, civil and criminal penalties are at play. My, my mom is a bank teller. Actually, my mom and my mother-in-law are both bank tellers for major banks in the United States. And uh, my mom is a bank teller in southern Florida. So you can imagine the types of crazy uh, suspicious activities that she sees on a regular basis. And um, she said you always err on the side of caution because her job's at stake. So even if she thinks that something might be suspicious, you fill out an SAR because she's frankly covering her own ass. And that's a lot of times how bank tellers operate. Well, and you've got to remember that regulators get to view suspicious activities in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So after they already know like something bad has happened, then they look back and, and it seems obvious to them then at that point that the teller should have seen it. They don't see it from the teller's perspective at happening in real time. And so um, you know that uh, $9,999 deposit, that one's going to get filled out every single time regardless of whether it's the first time they do it. Because you just have to be overly cautious knowing that you're going to be judged in retrospect. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. So, Jeff, uh, this topic was covered a little bit in the film, but I'd like to follow up on it. Uh, suppose, suppose I'm uh, a, one of the people who thinks that marijuana should be illegal. I think the federal law is correct. I don't like seeing these pesky state governments trying to undermine it. And, and, uh, and so... My position so far is, well, look, you know, it's, this is, these are the last, uh, some of the last levers left that the federal government has by which to enforce this law that I think is a darn good idea. Uh, that is the, uh, the uh, criminal sus- substance abuse law. Ha, ha, what would be your counter to me to convince me that even though I have the view of marijuana that I have, that all things considered, this combination of, 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 of laws legalizing and not legalizing marijuana-related activities is, is, is worse than what uh, this film would propose. So I offer three reasons why even marijuana or drug prohibitionists generally should still want the part of the industry that is legal under state law to be banked in the normal way of any other business. Any attempt to keep it from banking normally is going to tend to drive that industry into the gray market or the black market. It may not become fully legal, even though it could under the state law, because it's dealing with all this cash, because it's not getting one of the big benefits of being fully legal. And that means a couple of things. The tax revenue that states would like to collect they're not going to collect to the extent these industries stay underground. And we've heard many examples. California is the most recent, where the industry is seriously considering staying underground, even though it's been legalized, because there's all this regulation and taxation and all these things they have to deal with if they become fully legal. But if you were a prohibitionist, I would think even for that such a person, you would think that giving that tax revenue away, in particular, giving it to people who are breaking a law that you think is a good law, so rewarding people that, in your view, should be criminals, is a completely sort of insane position. So even though you don't like marijuana legalization, you should still want it to be banked. Second issue is 
by keeping it underground, by keeping it in, and particularly keeping it in cash only, you're going to generate more crime, robbery, theft, violence that might occur in the process uh, of robbery, theft, and so on. Some of that will will affect only the people working in this state legal industry. So maybe if you're a prohibitionist, you don't really care. But some of that spills over to other people in society and the neighborhoods where these establishments exist. It takes police resources away from enforcing other laws. So I still think even a prohibitionist should want to eliminate that crime that we can reduce by having the industry be banked. And I think more broadly, if you're this prohibitionist who says we have these laws, we should enforce them, you want people to respect the rule of law. And therefore, by not allowing the industry to be banked when it's state legal, you're again encouraging things to stay in the shadows, to stay underground. And that's bad for people respecting the view that there's some laws that we have, and people should obey those laws, whether they're strongly enforced or not. And people who are obeying the laws as it exists should be left alone. So I think it's very counterproductive from that perspective as well. So uh, let's talk more about what, what might be done to improve on, on the current state of things. And here I'd like to pose questions to all the panelists at once so that we don't miss out on any potentially valuable suggestions. It sounds like we could use all the good ones we can, we can come up with. Uh, so um, uh, one, one question that occurs to me is, and this is regarding the SAFE Act, uh, well, let me step back. The SAFE Act is an alternative to just repealing the uh, marijuana component of the, uh, 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 of the CSA. It's, it's, it's not repeal. So the question I have about the SAFE Act for the panelists is, let's suppose we have that, but the CSA is still on the books with, it, with, pro, with marijuana being among the prescribed drugs. Now you've got all these banks and all these records doesn't that mean that somebody who uh, is dealing with marijuana and now has got all this transactions and recorded, et cetera, uh, could still be uh, open to prosecution, quite arbitrary perhaps, you know, they just decide to pick on someone who has a particularly big processing production plant. So isn't that a problem for this solution? Wouldn't we still expect to have a lot of underground and cash-based uh, marijuana-related activities? Well, I'll start. Um, that is obviously a risk, that you now have this paper trail of uh, activity going on at a cannabis-related business that a federal law enforcement official could use in a prosecution. The other thing that they could use in a prosecution is a phone book and just look up a dispensary in Denver or Seattle and walk in. and. Right before them is all of the illegal activity that they would possibly need to see in order to not just prosecute, but to convict. And so this is an industry that is out in the open. Um, allowing it to be a little bit more out in the open in, a, in the context of a financial institution is a drop in the bucket of the glaring criminality from the federal perspective that is going on now in nine states um, for recreational marijuana and dozens of states uh, for medical marijuana. So I'm sort of a purist, I, and I'm skeptical about sort of process. I would be nervous, not that the SAFE Act might not do some good along, exactly along the lines that John outlined, but that by passing it, 
it might take some of the fire out of the deep opposition that I would like to exist to the law in its entirety. And so, which is the, cons which is the Controlled Substances Act and, substances. and related policy. Now, there is one thing you could imagine doing to address this situation that falls, falls short of, excuse me, falls short of full repeal, which is reschedule marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. Then if it's legal to be prescribed under the federal law, then the medical marijuana dispensaries, not the recreational stores, but the dispensaries, are legal doing something that's legal under federal law. And de facto, that might address the situation you know, to a great degree. Then the producers would also be legal they, to the extent that they only dealt with, with the legal They only supply to an authorized dispensary. Well, let's just turn this. I'm sorry, did anyone else have any more to say on, 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 on this particular, on the SAFE Act? I want to turn now the, uh, this, the, the question around and talk about uh, the option of uh, simply taking marijuana off the list of uh, prohibited uh, uh, substances. Uh, that would go a long way, no question about it. <laughs> but, um, but would it in fact cover everything that needs to be covered? Uh, is, there, is, is there any sense, because I, in some of the... Uh, things I've read, people have suggested that there might be some need for some developments on the state level, but I can't think of any. I, I, is it sufficient, in fact? Are you done when you get marijuana off the CSA? Anything left that uh, you still have all these substance, uh, these suspicious activities, or anything that could still bite? Well, I think so. Um, I think bank regulators have so much power that if they decide that even if marijuana is legal, they don't like it, they view it as risky for some reason, they still have lots of tools that they can use to make life miserable for banks. And we saw this uh, when we had Operation uh, Checkpoint, right? The idea was that financial regulators would crack down on banks that were serving industries that um, the regulators didn't like, like even though they were legal, even though they were legal, like people who sold firearms. Oh. Um, and just in fact, a few weeks ago, the New York federal regulator sent a letter to banks that said, um, "We wish you wouldn't provide banking services to the NRA." Uh, so I don't think it's enough to say that it's legal because financial regulators have so many tools in their bag to push banks to do things that even when they're technically legal. So I think it has to be, a, for banks, it has to be a combination of it being legal for them, not criminal, but also the regulators have to decide that it's something they're going to allow, that they don't view it as something that is per se too risky, even if legal. One might hope that in a world in which there had been enough public support to repeal the CSA, that bank regulators' attitudes would also have moderated toward the marijuana industry, but I, I accept your point. It's no guarantee. All it takes is one, right? One regulator to walk into a bank and decide that he doesn't like something, and that thing has to end for that bank. Mm -hmm. One thing that helps, um, I think, to combat that is the expansion of legalization at the state level. Um, and so if you repeal or if you remove marijuana from the list of controlled substances, that would uh, legalize cannabis nationwide. Uh, so if you were in Alabama, you could start growing because it's not against the law. You could open a company, et cetera. That would rapidly increase the size of the legal marijuana industry in the United States. Um, that would likely induce 
banks into wanting to bank this industry because now it would be more financially um, incentivized for them. And uh, Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Chase have a pretty good lobby in this town. And my guess is they could they could push some bank regulators and uh, some of the appointees who oversee them in the in the right direction, the direction that they want them to go. Uh, a nascent industry, I think, has less appeal for a financial institution to bank, uh, but a nationwide industry, especially uh, the size of the cannabis industry, if it were nationwide, would uh, be, I think, uh, a little too difficult for a bank just to say no. So my, my next question is very risky for me <laughs> because it involves two names that I probably will mispronounce. Uh, 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 and the, the reference here is to the Rohrabacher Blumenauer Amendment. How's that? <laughs> uh, which, uh, until recently, if I understand correctly, prohibited the Justice Department from spending money on marijuana cannabis prosecutions. So, um, uh, my question with regard to that is. Is this measure likely to be reauthorized? I understand there's, it could be reauthorized. And if so, would that make any difference at all to any of this? So its reauthorization has been continued. It has been oh, uninterrupted. It has been? Yeah. Okay. Um, I would fear that if at some point it's not reauthorized, that the Jeff Sessions Attorney General's office would start to engage in marijuana prosecutions in some states, especially the states that have legalized and that seem to have the most open markets, the ones that he'll be able to say are selling it out of state and therefore not even being consistent with the Cole memo from the Obama administration. So I think that reauthorization potentially plays a useful role in keeping the feds partially at bay. And, and Jeff, uh, what, what is... To what extent is there a real risk that it won't be reauthorized? What's your perception about that? I'm not good at making those predictions. Yeah. If we, if the Congress changes to being democratic, maybe that's a little bit, you know, it's much more likely to uh, keep being reauthorized. If it stays Republican, who knows? It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's it was pretty close. I mean, you have a lot of lobbying organizations around this industry uh, working hard on Capitol Hill, especially around this issue. This is seen as something that is obviously not a cure-all uh, for the problems that the cannabis industry faces, but its repeal or its lack of reauthorization, I think, would be seen as a major defeat for the industry. And so uh, even lobbying organizations that see this as a, a small first step also see it as a big first step because it is the first amendment to legislation that has advanced cannabis reform at the federal level. And so because of that, it is, um, it's important. I'm uh, a little less worried about what Sessions would do. Um, uh, the medical marijuana industry is so large in the United States in terms of the number of states that are involved. Um, he can pick a fight right now with the recreational industry if he wanted to, and he hasn't. Um, and so, uh, I'm not sure that he starts busting down doors in, you know, Connecticut and in Rhode Island and Delaware, uh, but it injects more uncertainty in, into an already uncertain market. And I think that's dangerous for markets. It's dangerous for 
uh, the individuals who are working in this industry, but most importantly, if you're a marijuana advocate, a cannabis reform advocate, it's really dangerous for patients, people who are literally dying and using this to deal with nausea or to deal with a variety of ailments that they have. um, That's the real threat um, is to them in in a very human way. Sticking to the question of federal action or uh, reform, uh, what effect is the uh, uh, growing uh, magnitude of the opioid crisis and the attention that it's getting uh, uh, altering, uh, shifting the terms of the discussion on marijuana? Is it is it is it helping to perhaps ease the way to backing off a little bit on marijuana or is it having the opposite effect? I would think that it would have some bearing on, on attitudes. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it's, my hunch would be on net, it's having a deleterious effect on the legalization movement because it's just reminding people, it's making people think that the substances we've outlawed are potentially very dangerous and so we should be more cautious. It is, t- to some degree, reinvigorating the law enforcement approach to the Controlled Substances Act. Um, it's leading to lots of congressional actions and state-level actions uh, to restrict access to opioids. Um, and that goes along with just thinking the government should be in this business of restricting access more generally. Now, there is some evidence that goes the opposite direction, which is that state-level marijuana legalizations or medicalizations have helped reduce the opioid crisis in those states that have adopted those laws, plausibly because people substitute. Both things are useful at alleviating pain, and so when medical marijuana is available, people have used that somewhat more and opioids somewhat less, and that's been beneficial in slowing the pace of the epidemic. But that's the facts, I'm not sure that's the perception. So that hasn't had as big an influence on the, on the discussion so. as yeah. uh, the general yeah. concern has. Um, so allowing that, that the change has to mainly come from Congress, if we're going to see any big improvement in the banking of marijuana-related businesses, uh, in the meantime, let's suppose we're waiting, we're hoping that there'll be a safe act or even perhaps repeal of a part of the Controlled Substance Act. What, if anything, can state initiatives accomplish? Is there really much they can do that's gonna make any difference? So for example, um, one of the plans I read about uh, in connection with the researching the movie was California's to create a special banking license. It doesn't sound, Julie, to me, from what you've had to say, that this can make much difference. Uh, these are special banking licenses for banks that are just designed to deal with cannabis-related businesses. But can that or can any sort of state initiative really accomplish anything? And if so, what sort of state initiative? So Colorado's already been down the path. Uh, They did create a special charter for cannabis credit co-ops, they called them. Um, They said, look, if you're a marijuana business, you can get together with other marijuana businesses and apply for this thing. It'll be like a credit union, except that you won't have to have share insurance. but you're still going to have to get access to the Federal Reserve System and you know, let us know if you want one, and no one's applied for one. Um, in fact, uh, people who decided they wanted to bank the industry have uh, used more traditional 
financial institutions. And I think the reason for that is just that they want access to the Federal Reserve's payment systems and also perhaps federal insurance. Um, one interesting idea that's been kicked around in California is an idea for California itself, the state, to create its own bank to bank the marijuana industry. And I think that they run into the same legal problems as any other bank. They still well, they might be able to self-insure, so maybe they get around um, deposit insurance, but they still need access to the Federal Reserve's question. But, but in my mind, at least, the way the question gets teed up is a little different from a political perspective. It's one thing for the federal government to tell individuals um, that they're going to put them in jail for money laundering or individual banks that they're going to shut them down for money laundering. It's quite another thing for the federal government to tell elected officials in California, the California treasurer, for example, that he's going to put that person in jail for money laundering. I mean, that raises all sorts of political questions that private actors don't raise. And so from that perspective, I mean, legally, I'm not sure that they're on any safer footing, but politically, they might be on safer footing, especially in a state like California that's, after all, large enough that they can set their own emission standards. Well, that's a that's a tricky suggestion for us libertarians to, to right. handle, right? Because on the one hand, we want to bank the marijuana industry and avoid all the problems that it's being unbanked creates. On the other hand, endorsing the state governments having their own banks. That's a, I didn't that's say a, it was a good idea. I said no, it was an I, I, interesting I to, idea. I didn't, mean to, <laughs> I didn't mean to claim you did, uh, but, but it is a difficult one because the state involvement in setting up their own banks that poses problems too, of course. And, oh, well, to and, me that just Could seems... I ask you a question, Julie? Um, so if a state does that, now North Dakota has considered this for their medical industry, California is considering it for the broader industry, from a... a banking law perspective, could a regulator step in and say to California, you're a money launderer by doing this, so your state accounts are now at risk because you're all connected. I mean, even if the money hey, doesn't they don't have any money over, anyway to take. <laughs> <laughs> if the money doesn't bleed over in those accounts, could they still seize assets because this is a, an entity that is money laundering but also has access in another area? to a financial system. So I think if you just read the law, it seems like if they break the law, they can be treated like anyone else. But when you go out, I think, looking for examples of when federal officials have brought criminal actions against state officials acting under color of state law, at least, um, it's hard to think of examples outside sort of the Civil War and, and Civil Rights era. So, you know, there's a National Guard going in to integrate uh, schools in the South or um, the North attacking the South. There's, yeah, I'm from, I live in Alabama, so <laughs> <laughs> during that all the whole unpleasantness. Um, but beyond... So they might not be prosecuted, or we might have another civil war. <laughs> so it's hard, to, it's hard to find examples outside um, sort of slavery and civil rights contexts for things like that happening, but the law seems, doesn't seem to create a, a carve-out specifically for states. So... Uh, uh, recently, I think it was last month, uh, President Trump announced that he'll support uh, congressional efforts to protect states. I'm not sure quite that mean, what that means. That's part of the question. To protect states that have legalized marijuana. So uh, what does that mean, if anything? <laughs> uh, and specifically, does that, does that, do you think that that means that he would support uh, the SAFE Act for 
uh, uh, if, if in fact it got to his uh, sent up for his signature. Well, I think the first thing it means is that he'd like uh, Cory Gardner to vote for his appointees. Okay. <laughs> uh, beyond that, I'm not sure he has any idea what it means. I see. Anyone else? I have no idea what it means <laughs> any more than anything else that okay. current president says. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I, I don't think anyone in this room would be shocked if the bill landed on his desk and he changed his mind on a policy position either. So Has he done that? I've, I've heard once or twice, but I don't know. It's a rumor. <laughs> If I was just speculating, um, I think he doesn't have quite the same problem with marijuana that um, Jeff Sessions has, for example. But um, I also don't think it's high on his priority list of things that he wants fixed. And so I think he's happy to tell um, the Colorados and Washingtons of the world that he's on their side. Uh, but, you know, several, several steps behind them. I mean, his rhetoric on the campaign trail was the most progressive rhetoric on cannabis of any presidential candidate in American history, including Hillary Clinton. And so um, if you take him at what is now an extended set of words from the campaign trail to the Oval Office, um, perhaps if it gets to his desk, I mean, this is a man who hasn't issued a veto yet, it'd be odd if he issued it over that. Um, and he clearly has no problem defying his attorney general um, in any context. So I don't know what forces within the White House would be sitting on his shoulders saying, veto that bill, it's, it's going to cause havoc. Well, goodness, we've got some time for a uh, question and answer from the audience. And uh, I've, I, uh, I'm going to start, start uh, uh, with... The gentleman right here in the front, and I believe you will be brought a, a microphone, so if you would hold on before asking your questions until you have a microphone in front of you, uh, they'll be coming down. And, uh, and uh, do, please, uh, limit, do please ask a question rather than making a spiel, uh, and uh, if you wish to, you're welcome to direct it, of course, to one of the panelists. Uh, rather this than to the whole panel. To any and all. Um, given that Jeff Sessions has been known as somebody who respects federalism, <laughs> what, what, what do you speculate is his motivation for, for taking this position? I mean, why would he go out of his way? I mean, yeah, okay, he doesn't like drugs, but I mean, there's got to be something... <laughs> something in him behind this that uh, is fueling this in him. Does anybody want to speculate? I'll, I'll take this. Um, uh, <laughs> the, the Attorney General respects federalism when it suits him. Um, a lot of people who respect federalism respect it when it suit them, suits them. Um, and so uh, I think that's a, a, a silly argument to make. Uh, your second question, though, where is this motivation coming from? He is a career law enforcement official. Um, he was a U.S. attorney. Um, he was a state attorney general. He was almost a federal judge. Um, this is someone who was raised in a culture, not in, I mean, Alabama is one culture that would add to this, uh, but the law enforcement culture where everyone has been spoon-fed uh, since their first days in law school or their first days in the police academy that marijuana is bad, um, that it's something that does terrible things to bad people and can do terrible things to good people too. And that, 
becomes ingrained. And when your job is to prosecute as many people as possible um, for marijuana crimes, because it also helps balance the books at the local PD, um, you are now a career marijuana warrior. And it's hard to break out of that. You see police departments across America having a difficult time breaking out of the mode of prohibition. And some police departments have done well, others have done terribly at this. It's very difficult for prosecutors. I mean, look at Loretta Lynch, for instance. Uh, no one's gonna paint her as a conservative, but she had a very conservative um, position when it came to cannabis. Um, because of that, acclamation throughout an entire career. And I think for Jeff Sessions, it's the same thing, though I, I thank God Loretta Lynch isn't here because if I were comparing her to the new attorney general, she'd probably storm the stage. But um, <laughs> I think for a lot of individuals, Jeff Sessions in particular, um, especially some of the pointed and racist rhetoric he's had on the issue of marijuana in particular, it's just a mold he'll never break out of because he was raised in that mold. I think if you could say one thing about Jeff Sessions that would make him sort of most proud is that you would say that he is a religious or moral conservative. And I think that drives him more than um, ideology about federalism. Oh, let's go over here next. And Tommy Brooks with Clark Hill. Um, in 2014, in response to, I think, a regulator in Washington, the four prudential regulators um, sent a letter to the Washington regulators basically saying, let Congress decide. We really don't have a position as to how we're going to deal with um, our actions as a banking regulator. Uh, since that time, do any of you have any explicit experience or knowledge as to what the articulated current position is of the four prudential banking regulators on what they would do to enforce or not enforce safety and soundness issues in light of that fact, I think, that three to 400 financial institutions actually are engaging in some form of banking the marijuana industry. Thank you. So none of the regulators have issued any statements seeming to suggest that they're cool with it. Um, but uh, there are a number of credit unions that openly bank uh, the marijuana industry, and they have publicly said that the NCUA is aware of what they're doing and has told them uh, that their due diligence procedures are at least for now sufficient. So at least some people at the NCUA seem okay with some marijuana banking in some states. Um, beyond that, it's hard to know. The uh, Federal Reserve uh, denied Fourth Corner Credit Union's application for uh, a master account when they said that what they wanted to do was bank the marijuana industry. But when they came back and said, no, no, we, we said we were going to bank the industry before, but we're, we're totally not going to now. We're just going to bank marijuana advocacy groups, which has got to be you know, a huge market. Um, they've now, uh, you know, after being prodded along by a lawsuit, said, well, that'd probably be okay as long as you promise to never, ever, ever bank marijuana businesses. So that seems to maybe be indicative of at least where the Federal Reserve wants to be publicly. Um, the other regulators, it's just hard to know where exactly they're at now, I think. Over here, sir. Hi, David Krukoff, Douglas County, Maryland. 
Um, could you talk about cryptocurrencies and how that could alleviate potentially or par for a partial time period until some of the things you other things you've had discussed are passed by our wonderful Congress? Why is I, it that when you're a banking regulator, only thing people ever ask you about is <laughs> marijuana and Bitcoin? <laughs> I'm sort of dubious that cryptocurrencies are going to have much to do with this one way or the other. I take as given that almost all entities in the world, except a few people who are libertarians, don't like competition. Competition is not good for the competitors. It's good for the consumers, not the competitors. So competitors don't like it. The federal government and all governments fall into the same category. Cryptocurrency is competition for a government monopoly of the supply of money. And they're never going to let it exist in a serious way. I mean, right now, it's not really being used for transactions. It's not really threatening to take over instead of cash or checks or credit cards. But if it ever did, it would be shut down in a heartbeat. And it's already being shut down to a significant degree in lots of countries and in lots of ways and regulated out of existence. So I don't see that as a help no. in any serious way. I mean, a little bit, of course, it will occur, but not a big way. Yeah, marrying a currency that the federal government is skeptical of for a product <laughs> that the federal government is skeptical of is a recipe for disaster. Well, and marijuana businesses have tried to come up with innovative ways to get around the banking issue. So when it first uh, legalized recreational use in Colorado, they decided that what they would do is they'd get third-party people to provide ATMs and they'd put them right outside the dispensaries. And that worked really well until the banks providing the ATMs figured out that they were right outside a marijuana store. And then they're like, oh, wait, this is money laundering. It's the same sort of thing when you're adding some sort of cryptocurrency. It's not that you're taking an activity and making it legal. It's still money laundering if you take payments from an illegal source and direct them to legal source. So um, just because you're using something that's not US dollars doesn't fix the underlying problem of it being illegal. Maybe you've made it harder to track people. Um, but to the extent you're doing that, I'm not sure you're helping cryptocurrencies at all. But isn't it true that, uh, at least as a medium for making payments among the marijuana-related industries, uh, that since there are no banks involved, that the laws, at least the laws that are with respect to banks that are getting in the way of, of, uh, of these firms being banked in that uh, literal sense of the term, they can overcome some problems of having to deal with a lot of actual piles of cash. And wouldn't it help in that respect in the safety dimension? Why wouldn't the people who are able and willing to use Bitcoin then just go to the underground market and avoid the taxes and the regulation mm -hmm. rather than going to the legal sector but try to use Bitcoin in the legal sector? Well, uh, my point is that it, it's a little bit safer to have uh, a bunch of Bitcoin you know, a Bitcoin wallet than to have a piles of cash in your in your firm and that sort of thing. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> they don't get hacked. <laughs> yeah. Get it doesn't solve all the problems for sure. Yes, right here. And then I'll, in the back. Bill Bushker, DoAskDoTell.com. I usually come to the free speech forums, and to me there's a parallel between wanting to regulate banks and financial institutions that do, do business with marijuana, as you're describing, 
and the pressure that is on private businesses today over the behavior of consume, you know, behavior of users of the internet and their, their and the consequences of the behavior and that this whole idea that any large company should know its customers and the whole question of whether companies should be responsible for what their what their customers do, like in the speech area, Section 230 and so forth, the sex trafficking and, and many other areas. I can see parallels, and they're really very dangerous. They're, I'm have my, an unusual business model myself with publishing, and I can see ways I could get in trouble. Um, they're not imminent, but I can imagine things that could happen just based on the things you said this afternoon. And I wonder if you could comment on holding private companies responsible for what individual people do when we believe in personal responsibility. You know, a lot of people with this tribalist world we're in, we're sliding back and they don't seem to believe in personal responsibility anymore. I think you said it very well. I completely agree. <laughs> um, anytime you deviate from the notion that voluntary exchange is always permissible, there's, when there's no coercion, there's no violence, then it should always be legal. If you deviate from that, then you're led to all of these bad policies, such as anti-money laundering laws and the kinds of uh, policies against big businesses that you're describing. I agree, it's all part of the same anti-freedom, um, you know, authoritarian impulse. Yeah. I think if you ask the average American um, questions about whether that type of regulation impedes on their rights on a lot of basic issues, uh, marijuana for instance, they're going to agree with your position. I bet if you ask most Americans though if um, you think that banks should be on the lookout for terrorist financing, um, they're gonna say absolutely 100%. Um, should banks be on the lookout for money involved in sex trafficking? The average American is going to say yes, absolutely. And so you start to build this regulatory state um, and you build support for the regulatory state rather um, based on the extremes, but then those extremes then bleed into no-brainer areas like granting the legal cannabis industry access to banking. And so where the line gets drawn I think is a very difficult one because the average American, or I would say a supermajority of Americans, would want, at least in some circumstances, uh, banks to be cognizant of the types of transactions that they're dealing with, whether it's the extreme of terrorist financing or whether it's something uh, less, uh, less extreme than that. There was a question in the back that I didn't want to skip, but uh, well, let's go up to this gentleman here with the beer. And then uh, I, I recognize you back there, Norbert, so you're later. Oh, no, this, this, this man right here. Right here. <laughs> right here. Oh, there we go. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get Norbert later. He's, he's not so important. <laughs> so my question is, um, given that there are at least a handful of banks that are banking this, uh, and there are some dispensaries, some right here in Washington, D.C., that do accept payment methods on credit card, it's not a cash-only business, from the federal regulator's perspective, how is that operating in reality on the ground right now, post coal memo and all this? Like, how how are, are they able to do that and not fear every day of sort of the feds coming after them? How do, how are the federal regulators acting in this situation? Well, it's hard to know exactly what's going on because uh, a lot of the regulatory enforcement mechanism is not transparent at all. 
uh, regulators go. They visit a bank. They look at their due diligence process. They look at the um, documents that they file with the regulator. Most of those are not subject to FOIA requests. They don't make any public statements. They just you know, sit in a room uh, with that has no ears and says to bankers one-on-one, -on -one, this is what we will accept from you. And so it's hard, um, it's hard for new bankers to know, you know, where's the line? Um, and regulators say, well, this is the way we've got to have it. Because if we tell everyone where the line is, then we'll have all these people who come right up to the line. And we don't want that. We want banks to be more cautious. Um, but... Uh, if you find a bank that you know banks a marijuana business and you go to them, I've tried this, and ask, you know, uh, you know, suppose I wanted to open an account, what would I need to do? Well, are you going to open an account? No. Well, then we're not going to tell you. <laughs> In the first part of your question, uh, banks do fear this. I mean, this is something they're really worried about. Bank, uh, bankers, as well as the customers they're serving, they fear every day whether their accounts are going to get shut down, whether their bank is going to have a problem, whether it's from a federal regulator or for a national bank, whether a regional office or, or larger will crack down on them too. There have been a number of banks that were in the space and pulled back. Um, some of them have given reasons for that. Um, some of them have to do with regulatory concerns. What can I ask? Uh, I think we might have talked about this during our conversations making the film. Have any banks been prosecuted yet for working with the industry? Or is it more of a, they're all just too scared to, or they're kind of pulling out because for whatever reason they're just getting nervous? I think they have, I'm not aware of any uh, that have faced criminal prosecution. There are a couple that there have been press hints that there was an enforcement action, whether in, maybe at the informal level um, taken to pull them back from the space. Um, but I think, so if you're a marijuana grower or a marijuana seller, I mean, you don't probably have another business on the side. This is what you're gonna do to make money and to accept some amount of risk. If you're a bank or a credit union that's already operating, you already have customers, you're already making money. Why would you put all of that at risk? Even if you think the marijuana industry is gonna be huge, why would you put all of that at risk just to serve this one industry? I mean, how much market share do you have to really get in order to make up for the risk that you're taking? And now all the way in the back, and we'll have time for at least another question after that. Thank you, George. Norbert Michelle, Heritage Foundation. Uh, it's actually a segue from the second to last question. The Bank Secrecy Act of 1970 is kind of the genesis of a lot of this stuff, uh, not just with marijuana industry. Uh, do you see any specific reforms to that act in particular uh, that would be beneficial in, in helping sort of solve this problem, or is it an even bigger problem with other areas of banking law that would need to be uh, changed legislatively so that regulators wouldn't have so much discretion? So one small point is, even if there were no issues coming from banking regulation, you could imagine that an aggressive law enforcement could go after the state legal marijuana industry simply because they were aiding and abetting violations of the Controlled Substances Act. Yeah. So cleaning up the banking side probably helped, but it's not a cure-all by any means. And an example of that, for instance, is the USA Patriot Act. Um, that uh, 
will constrain banks from engaging in activities that are illegal in the United States. And so if you don't fix the Controlled Substances Act to legalize cannabis, um, you could fix the BSA all you want, and then a bank is going to say, sorry, we have Patriot Act concerns. That's what they're doing in Uruguay right now. Um, the banks in Uruguay that have tried to bank um, the legal adult-use cannabis industry there set up a system for the pharmacies that sell adult-use cannabis, and American banks went to that bank and said, you have an interbank account in the United States. It's a violation of the USA Patriot Act to engage in unlawful behavior. You have a choice. You can either um, uh, uh, break your interbank account with the United States, or um, uh, you can shut down the 15 pharmacy accounts that you have in Uruguay. It's a pretty simple choice for the <laughs> banks in Uruguay. And right there. I think, folks, this will probably be our last question. And thanks for having me. Uh, I will do what you told me not to, make a statement, but only because I actually wrote the Safe Banking Act for Senator Merkley when I served as his counsel. So that's all right. You can make a statement. Just confine it to I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did want to raise one issue which the panelists can actually help with. When we were writing that legislation, there wasn't a lot for us to rely on. There's been a few more academic articles since then, but in reality, uh, somebody said there's a huge lobbying industry around this. That's just not true. My good friend Michael Correa is here from National Cannabis Industry Association. But beyond him, Marijuana Policy Project and Drug Policy Alliance, there was almost no lobbying on any of these issues. And as great as these guys are, there are some thorny legal issues, particularly around regulation and banking, that none of them had the expertise to deal with and to guide us. So we did the best we could. And the, 2015, the 2017 Act was a little better than the 2015 Act. But in reality, we knew there were holes and we couldn't fill them. Uh, but overall, I think uh, one thing we learned, there are other letters out there from the four regulators. Somebody else asked that question. Senator Merkley and several other senators sent uh, a joint letter to all the regulators expecting a joint response, which is what we were hoping for. And we got four separate responses, which ran the gamut from the credit unions basically saying, look, we really want you to do this, is what they told us on the phone. But they wrote something a little quieter in the letter to the Fed, which is the real roadblock. I think both what we saw on the inside, Treasury doesn't care, uh, at least under the last administration. I couldn't tell you under this administration. Uh, NCUA would like to see this legalized. Uh, American Bankers Association, I know it's not the regulator, but it's the Banking Association, are supportive generally. They don't want to go too out in front. But what we saw in the industry, and I'm talking about the banking industry, is the same thing we saw in Congress. People don't care or they kind of like it, but everybody's scared until somebody steps out and does it. And so part of that is getting more attention on the subject academically, pushing the regulators from outside. I think as soon as the Fed does something like what FinCEN did with their 2014 guidance, uh, that's it. You really don't need congressional uh, legislation, but you will see it then. Um, it's amazing how the regulators can hold up Congress. I worked on another issue uh, where uh, DOJ had signed off. It was another uh, regulatory investigative issue. All major regulatory agencies had signed off except the SEC. It had more than 60 votes in the Senate, was ready to go, and the SEC has held it up for years simply by objecting to it. So 
working on the regulatory agencies uh, in this congressional environment is where the action should be. And then getting the legislation right and, and ping-ponging the two off each other is what needs to be going on. And, and for that to happen, academics need to put more focus on this. And I would say also uh, institutions like Cato need to have much more robust, robust uh, engagement with members and staff and regulatory agencies and staff. Um, beyond that, there's a few other things, but I'll stick around for a few minutes afterwards if anybody wants to talk to me about these issues. Thank you. Sure. Uh, we have no more time for questions. Uh, I don't know if anyone on the panel, though, would, would like to make a remark or two uh, concerning uh, uh, those points, or if you're fine to proceed to the reception. Everybody okay? Yeah, I won't stand between Very people Very good. Here, yeah. Well, then we can be more or less on schedule. <laughs>